Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to say that we're joined by the great Sanjeev Bhaskar. Sanjeev, welcome to Kermode on Film. This is your first time on the podcast, I think. It's my first time on the podcast. and I'm really quite nervous about it. Oh, I'm, I'm, don't worry. It's going to be. It's going to be very easy. I'm just going to say lots of nice things, and we're going to have a good time. So basically, um, I asked you to come on because we've just recently done a Secret of Cinema um, on British comedy, which is now on BBC iPlayer. If you haven't seen the program already, go to BBC iPlayer. It'll be there for a while. Hopefully, we're going to get them to leave it up there for you know for a long while. But but who knows? Don't waste time. Go see it now. And when we were making the program, you featured in it. Um, several times and you had been really helpful uh, throughout making uh, of Secrets of Cinema just yesterday you were doing a, a lecture at Exeter University and I was remembering that when we were doing the rom-coms program when I was looking for uh, clips from Bollywood movies it was you that I got in touch with and went Sanj give me give me three really great clips and you got me the guys on the train you remember the thing with the train sequence which was just That's amazing, amazing. Yeah. really incredible so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the program about secret about a uh, British comedy, but also more generally about comedy. And I want to start with this. One of the things that we we didn't in the end use in the program, although weirdly enough, it was a kind of a guiding principle, was a little clip from the film Funny Bones, mm-hmm. which is a film that's kind of you know fallen by the way now, but is actually a really odd and interesting little film, in which Jerry Lewis in England, but in some miserable seaside thing, says this thing about there are comedians who have funny bones. And we quoted that and said, there are some people who have funny bones. And in fact, we used a clip of you as, a, as, as an illustration of somebody who is naturally funny. And then there are other people who kind of work at comedy. I know that you work at everything you do, but do you think that there is such a thing as a funny bone? Yes, I think that is i mean it's it's horses for courses a little bit because you know there were so many people particularly on british television who had funny bones uh and i'm thinking about people like eric morcombe or tommy cooper who just couldn't translate to the big screen i mean the uh, morcombe and wise did two or three films i think yeah the intelligence uh, men intelligence men that riviera touch was yeah. another one that they did um but um it didn't quite translate to to the big screen and i think the notion of funny bones is really about uh, an intrinsic and inherent understanding of comic timing. And I think that that is, I mean, people have funny faces and people kind of do pratfalls and all that kind of stuff. Um, But those are are techniques. 
But uh, that whole sense of timing, which is obviously essential to all comedy uh, and, and pretty useful in drama as well, um, <laughs> I think it comes down to that. I think there are people who just inherently know and can feel it. And I think the ones that translated well to the big screen were the ones who knew how to do it for the big screen. Yeah, I mean, you featured um, Tony Hancock in a couple of clips. Yeah. And, you know, his films were, were never as big as he was on television or, or on the radio. No. And, you know, there was something about that where someone like Peter Sellers just kind of got it. He just knew how to pitch his comic performance, uh, whether it was kind of, you know, fairly low key. I mean, Dr. Strangelove, again, which you featured, does it brilliantly, actually, because the scale of each of the three characters he plays are, are quite different. And, you know, the, the president of the United States is probably the most naturalistic of the three. But he he just knew exactly where to pitch that. And, you know, with, with the Doctor Strangelove character himself, that's quite a big character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but, but, you know, like a cameo only appears, you know, towards the end of the film for a short while. But again, he just knew instinctively where to pitch that. Tommy, I think there are two types of comedians. There's a Funny Bones comedian and a non-Funny Bones comedian. They're both funny. One is funny. The other tells funny. And Tommy, it's time you knew, and this kills me the most, but you're neither. You're not funny. Know it now. They're not going to stand and cheer for you no matter what you do. Sanjay, I want to ask you to tell a story that you told yesterday. Um, you were doing a, a, a lecture at Exeter and you told a story about something that happened very early on. It was a shocking story, but also it had a great sting in the tail about when you were younger and you were told that you wouldn't understand something because yeah. of who you were. To, to set this up for us, because I thought it was a really great story. Uh, well, it was. It, so I was kind of, you know, I was interested in films from when I was a little kid and um and was quite passionate about film and about filmmaking, actually, not just watching movies and enjoying movies, but how they came about. And to me, it was all magical. And so I was interested in all things that, that kind of, you know, grew from that and out of that or into it. And uh, we had, um, I was at school in West London and we had quite a large uh, Asian, British Asian minority in the school, about a third of the school were, were Asian. And, uh, and we had, because there were such large numbers, it was a huge school, it was about 1,500, 1,600 kids, I think. And uh, they brought in a community liaison sort of teacher uh, to come in there to kind of, you know, bridge that understanding between, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, indigenous teachers particularly and these kind of, you know, um, uh, brown-skinned uh, little foreigners. And uh, um and I remember walking past this this teacher, this particular teacher, who was talking to a maths teacher at the time, and I heard the words theatre, and I kind of marginally stopped and turned my head, which you know caught her eye, and she said yes, and I said I'm sorry, I, I just heard you were, use the word theatre, and I'm interested in you know all that kind of storytelling of every kind, and so I was just I was just curious that that was it. I was about twelve, twelve or thirteen at that point. And she looked at me and she said, uh, she said, well, she said, we were talking about music hall. It's not your culture. You wouldn't understand. 
And I was just <laughs> really hurt by this. You know, I wasn't, and I was, you know, it was more that, that my passion for it wasn't engaged with or maybe recognized or something. And I stood my ground and I said, well, what era of music hall are you talking about? Are you talking about the Fred Carno players? Are you talking about Lupino Lane? Are you talking about Max Miller, Tommy Trinder? I mean, at what point, what, what, you know, what are you talking about? And she just stared at me and I said, oh, you probably don't know. And then walked <laughs> off. And I was, I was really, I was really upset by it. I was just annoyed at the preconception, actually. It was the kind of presumption that, you know, how or why would I know about any of these things? But I did by the age of 13. I went home the other night, there's a funny thing. And I went in the back way, through the kitchen, through the dining room, the drawing room. And there's a fella standing there, not a stitch on. Can you imagine that lady? Here's your memory, girl. He hasn't got a stitch on. I called the wife in. I said, who's this? She said, don't lose your temper, Miller. Don't go raving mad. I said, I'm only asking a fair question. Who is it? She said, he's a nudist and he's coming to use a phone. There's a clever one from the wife. Eh? Were you were you always attracted to comedy? Did, did you always did you always like things that made you laugh? And when did you first realise that you could make other people laugh? Again, I think it was quite early on, and I think that it was certainly a defence mechanism. It probably still is. And one of the things that I kind of understood quite early on was there was a place beyond tragic, and that was ridiculous. So, you know, to be able to spin a situation beyond, you know, the, the challenge uh, into what it was beyond, I I think I I was able to do quite quickly. And I think one of the things that fed into that was from a really early age. So my, my earliest memory is, is uh, at two and a half. And, uh, and it's a pratfall, actually. So my earliest memory is two and a half years old. My parents were buying this flat above a laundrette and they were being shown around it. And I looked up these stairs and, you know, step by step, you know, climbed up it like I was scaling it. Uh, and I was probably about seven or eight steps up and I slipped and I tumbled down and the, the flat was empty. And so the floorboards and, and so it made a huge racket. And, you know, my parents came rushing out and, and so my mum said, what happened? And I said, I, I fell from the step. And she said, well, which step did you fall from? And I clambered up to the seventh or eighth step. I said, this one. And she said, well, how did you fall? So I did it again. And so that's my, that is my earliest memory. That's two and a half. But that's, um, like, but that's like Buster Keaton, isn't it? Buster Keaton became Buster Keaton because at a very young age, his parents had an act in which they would throw him around on the stage and even into the audience. That's how he became Buster. Because he said, well, it was a real Buster. He was really good at falling over. Okay, so you, presumably not getting hurt. <laughs> that's, well, that's the no other one, part of no the equation. He was too young to ask. I mean, that that documentary recently about Buster Keaton, in which you, people you, you hear exactly how Buster Keaton was used on stage. Nowadays, the social services would be round. Back then, it was the beginning <laughs> of a very, very serious career. Okay, so that's a very uh, so. You, you said a defence against against what? Were you bullied as a kid? Were you unpopular? Well, no, I had a horrendous time at school. Actually, school was because, awful. um, and you know, you, when you grow up, you look back on it, and it, a lot of it was just peer pressure. But a lot of it was around the fact that you know, I I patently spoke better English than any of my peers. I had a better knowledge of kind of pop culture, a better knowledge of British history than any of my peers. 
Uh, and yet there were constantly kind of assumptions made about me. And which, you know, extended into adulthood as well. But, but made, certainly, sorry, sorry, Sanj, made because? Well, because I was an Asian kid. It's simple as that. It kind of didn't matter that my kind of diction was good or my kind of vocabulary was was broad. Uh, those assumptions were still made. And uh, I remember um, this was this was infant school, so I would have been maybe six years old. And the production they put on was was Aladdin, and and I understudied Aladdin, and <clears throat> and Aladdin only got the part because he had a a judo suit. And so it looked vaguely kind of you know, sort of Middle Eastern. So that's why he was cast, a boy called Andrew. Uh, and yes. I love the fact that you remember his name. Oh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm keeping the surname off just in case. But, um, uh, and, but during the rehearsals of it, uh, the teachers would constantly say uh, when Andrew was on stage, Andrew, hold on a second. Sanjeev, could you come up here and, and show Andrew how to do that scene? And so I would do the scene and yet was not cast. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, I've said this before, but, you know, one of the, the, the most frustrating things was, you know, the nativity every year where I was always cast as one of the three bloody wise men. <laughs> every single year there was me, you know, Hakim and uh, Musafa. And, you know, we were... Uh, and uh, one year, and I complained, uh, you know, after about the second or third year, I kind of said, come on. But, you know, I'm, I'm shooing for Joseph or maybe the, the innkeeper or someone. And uh, they said, you can be uh, head sheep. And it took me 15 years before I realised the slight. But that I was, and they had, a, you know, I had a bit of cardboard that was with, with cotton wool uh, stuck to it that was tied around me. And I had to wander around on all fours. Head sheep. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, those kind of assumptions kind of, you know, particularly when I was so passionate about storytelling as well, yeah. it was it, it cut in a different way. But school, I mean, the, the period of time, I mean, we were born the same year. So, you yeah. know, that period of time towards the end of the 70s uh, was, you know, racism on the street was quite overt. And so there was there was that. But also and something I look back on now uh, as incredibly forming and something I'm hugely grateful for was that I actually then was also excluded by the Asian kids as well. Uh, there was there was a kid, I remember coming to school, this was when I was about 15, I think, um, and this Asian kid, one of the prominent Asian, British Asian kids, uh, yeah. big personality, um, came up to me and he said, uh, listen, he said, we can't talk to, you can't talk to white people anymore. And I said, I, I don't know if if, if you've kind of just forgotten uh, where we live and in which country we live, uh, but that's kind of complicated. And he said, well, no, you can't talk to any of the other white kids, teachers you can talk to. Uh, and I said, well, why? Because they haven't done anything to me. And, and he used, you know, then, uh, uh, then famously used by George W., I suppose, you're either with us or you're against us. And I said, I'm not with you or against you. I'm not, you know, it's kind of just nothing to me. But they then, because he was quite prominent and and uh, influential, he was an influencer <laughs> for his time. Uh, basically, all the Asian kids stopped talking to me as well. So it, it, there was a period of time, about three, four months, uh, actually over a few years, actually, but it, it, it intensified before uh, it got better. 
And so all of those things kind of, uh, I, I think, kind of, you know, shaped films, particularly films and television, were my escape. And the fact that I knew more about, I couldn't talk to anyone about, you know, the films I loved, but um, the fact that I could escape into those just made those emotionally really important to me. And particularly within that comedy, which was just the greatest escape. See, it's funny, although we have very different, um, you know, life stories, um, the, the, one th the one thing that we do have in common, I, you know, I got very badly bullied at school for, I mean, for a number of reasons. Firstly, I, I think I was a really difficult kid, but um, I was really weedy. I, I found it, I was really awkward. Um, I had a stupid name because back then my name was Fairy. I was Mark Fairy. Fairy was my father's name. Kermode was my mother's name. When my mother and father separated, I took my mother's name. If you're a weedy, difficult, awkward kid called Fairy, it's like a boy named Sue. You toughen up really fast mm -hmm. because you just you just get used to being literally the butt of absolutely everything. And I look back on it now and I think, well, it's okay. It made me, I mean, there was, there was a point in my life when I suddenly went from being a very small guy to weirdly being a, a guy who was twice my size. I suddenly <laughs> went into my legendary Elvis fat period and I've never looked back. I mean, I've, you know, I remember the first time I ever went into a diner and I sat down with my wife, Lynn, we sat down at breakfast and the waitress asked her what she wanted. And then she turned to me and said, and how about you, big fella? And I thought, that's it. I have officially put my childhood behind me. I'm going to have two breakfasts. Thank you very much and i also incidentally remember the names and the surnames of every child in that school but like you i found refuge in films television not so much but films all the time and i loved comedy films why I, was it not television by the way because that's in your home it's a, yeah it's a weird thing um i think part of it was that back then, in order to go to, there were about six cinemas that I go to. There was the classic, the Ionic, the Rex, as it was then, two Odeons, an ABC. And so, you know, I could go out to any number of cinemas on a bike ride or a bus ride or a walk or whatever it was. And if, I, if it was a weekend, I would go on Saturday and Sunday. So you'd spend two hours getting there. Then often you'd spend four or five hours in the, in the cinema because they'd often play double features or at least supporting features. And then it would take you a little while to get back. That would be Saturday. And then Sunday, I'd do the same thing again. And then during the week, we, didn't really, we weren't really allowed to watch telly. I mean, the telly went on at quarter to six for Magic Roundabout and the news. And then it was kind of off. So it's just, it was just, it wasn't really on in our house very much, which I suppose looking back now is odd, but we just, the, the telly was in a, was in a weird room. It wasn't in the sitting room. It was in whatever the off room was now yeah. thinking back on it. So it just, it wasn't particularly telly for me. It was, it was always cinema. But I loved, I loved going to the cinema and watching comedy. I loved going to see Woody Allen films. I loved going to see Mel Brooks films. I love anything, anything that was comedy would just it you know and i and i learned to you know to play the fool because it kind of if people laughed at you they didn't hit you that, i mean that's a really good point you know the whole thing about uh using you know uh, the ability to be a jester to avoid being hit i i certainly something that i kind of used because i you know unlike you i remained small and uh <laughs> Uh, so if someone says big guy to me, <laughs> there's just no escape. There's no escape at all. Um, but I remember kind of um, very often being able to sort of get out of 
potentially quite, despite all the racism that was around uh, at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, and the fact that no one was speaking to me at school. And so you're a bit of a target for those reasons. I very, very rarely got into punch-ups. And I kind of fooled myself into thinking that either they just weren't sure whether I would be lethal. You know, they could, you know, be that kind of, you know, Bruce Lee kind of entered the firmament in sort of like the early 70s. And so therefore, if I carried myself in a particular way, maybe they're just not sure and they'll, and they'll hold off. I, in, as, as an adult looking back, I think that's less likely. But, um, but I think it was the fact that I could come up with something that would make them laugh and, uh, or amuse them enough to, for me to be able to get out of that situation. You, funny enough, you reminded me the whole thing about going to the cinema. I can't remember whether I've told you this before, but uh, the first uh, argument in a cinema or first incident I had in a cinema with other people was when I was... 10, so 10 may, may have been, yeah, 73. So, um, and it was going to see with a friend, Nicholas Kennedy, uh, uh, going to see Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And so you, <clears throat> Nicholas and I are sitting there and there are four kids behind us. And one of these four is holding court. You know, the, the, the other three are, are in thrall. And, uh, and he's saying to them, he said, no, 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 right? First is Planet of the Apes, right? Then they escape from the Planet of the Apes, right? Then there's a conquest, and now it's the battle. And these other kids are going, God, you know everything about films. And I couldn't help it. And I had to turn around, and I said, sorry, you're wrong. I said, Beneath the Planet of the Apes was the second film. And it's at the end of that that they lead to the escape, and then conquest, and then battle. And there was silence for about two seconds before this kid just went, fuck off. And, <laughs> and I meekly turned around and Nicholas just looked at me and he just said, you idiot. You idiot. I couldn't help it. We want guns. Now, the final chapter in the incredible ape saga. There it is. Our wars. This is the hell my forefathers used to speak about. This background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour. The battlefield, a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped. The prize, the right to inherit what's left of the earth. The contestants, ape against man. The most unbelievable showdown ever filmed as the mutants strange, transformed men who live underground like moles battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain. No, you see, but the thing is, I would have done the same if somebody had said that it went battle for the planet of the... It went planet of the apes, escape for the planet of the apes. It, it would have taken every bit of strength to not go, no, beneath the planet of the apes. Well, also, because beneath the planet of the apes is... I think arguably almost the best movie, despite the fact yeah, that it's, I agree. The, you know, I mean, the father, son, and holy bomb, the, the taking off their skin, the worshiping the cobalt. The, I mean, it's it's insane. It's a film which yeah. literally ends with the whole world being blown up and the screen going white. <laughs> and I think over here it was a double A certificate, and I and it was like it was it was a tough. I mean, that and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes were definitely the toughest of those ones. My friend yeah. Tim Polcat and I used to the first time. Planet of the Apes came out on video 
we stayed up all night to watch all of them. This was we were grown up by this point, but we couldn't believe that it was possible to own all the Planet of the Apes movies and watch them all together. And we would constantly have discussions about how, which bits of the timeline didn't quite work because there's a weird thing with Battle for the Planet of the Apes is that Battle for the Planet of the Apes is still before Planet of the Apes by quite a long way. And, of course, Battle ends with that whole speech about we don't know how this is going to work out. Maybe there won't be a future in which the whole world gets you know, mm. destroyed. And, I mean, it's... I, I Yeah, I would have turned around and told the guy the same thing and I would have got lamped for it. I did, you know, it wasn't the, so much the fact that he got it wrong. It was the fact that he was being lauded for it. That's the thing that really annoyed me. Because if he'd gone, well, this, you know, it's it's planet and then escape, and they've got and they, the others have gone, oh, all right. It was just that they started going, God, you know everything about film, and that was the point. That oh, was the point. Do you know everything about film? I'm sorry, sir. I beg to differ. Uh, and yeah, I was lucky I didn't get a slap in the face for that. No, but I mean, I, that that would have absolutely driven me nuts. Okay, so when you were about that age, who were the people who were making you laugh? I, well, because most of my film watching came from television. And so I think really early on, during the summer holidays, uh, Easter holidays, all that sort of stuff, BBC Two in particular would just run old films and uh, starting from about 9, 10 in the morning. So there'd be a Chaplin and then be Buster Keaton or Howard Lloyd or Laurel and Hardy or something like that. And then there'd be, you know, there'd be a film in the middle, which would be a Cleopatra or something. And then there'd be something like Genevieve or, you know, so I, I got my broad kind of introduction and kind of love for, certainly for old films uh, from that. And then the films that generally my parents took me to. So I think, I think the first film I remember going to see was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I think either that or Mary Poppins. It was one of the two. Um, my mum took me to one. My dad took me to the other. Um, but, you know, at that age, we, the, the nearest um, uh, uh, cinema to us was at least a bus ride away. Also, my parents were taking me to Bollywood films on the weekend. So, you know, they then you couldn't. They Basically, they couldn't be asked. I mean, let's face it. They, they carry the blame for this uh, to take me to, to see other films. But um, so, it, yeah, it was very much that and very aware of... Peter Sellers and uh, the goons I kind of started to listen to quite early on the radio. They'd repeat a lot of the goon stuff. I had a couple of goon show LPs. I had the histories of Pliny the Elder and the dreaded batter pudding hurler of Bexhill on Sea, which I think my dad bought for me. And then I had a, I had a book of goon show scripts and I would get my sister and my brother to record me. My dad had an old, you know, reel to reel tape recorder mm. and I'd get my brother and sister to, you know, we'd recreate the goons. I mean, rather badly but it was the fact that we had a recording equipment and the script and I, I i used to love all of that stuff and then of course when i when hitchhiker's guide started on the radio that for me was like okay this is it's like this is like punk rock goons i mean it was that was a i loved radio comedy radio comedy absolutely worked for me yeah well also because i had a little transistor radio with a little earpiece thing so when i was meant to go to bed you know that's the point where i'd kind of throw the covers over and put that on so uh hitchhikers for me was hugely influential hugely influential but uh, they would play a lot of there was a lot of comedy on on radio at that point as well uh, when you when you um when we did the program the, one of the clips that we used of you was a clip from uh yesterday which is danny boyle's film of uh, richard curtis's script 
And one of the reasons that we used it was because it was to do with it was to do with timing because there, there aren't obvious gags in that scene. The gag is the kid is trying to play the song and he keeps getting interrupted. And mm-hmm. the thing that makes the gag funny is the timing of the interruption, specifically Terry next door, whoever it is, comes in and everyone sits in there and you keep offering like a beer or a cup of tea or mm-hmm. whatever. When you break that scene down, there aren't jokes in it. I mean, you know, there are jokes, but they're very, very kind of how would if you look at that scene on the page, is it how do you how do you envisage it in your head as because it's it is everything to do with that scene is to do with how those gaps are played out. That's the thing about the inherent timing thing. And obviously a scene like that can be fixed and tightened in an edit. Um, But, you know, when you're on when you're on set you play it as if you're in the theatre. You know, you try to get that timing right because also everybody else feeds off the timing. So, you know, it becomes rhythmic. And so it's very musical, I think, comedy when when it's played in that way. You know, people talk about rules of three and things like that, but it's comedy is very much about rhythms. And uh, it, it's that strange thing where, you know, the funniest thing in a scene is the length of a pause. And if that pause is a you know is a, a half a second too short, it's not funny. Half a te- second too long, it's not funny. There's a kind of comedy sweet spot that you have to hit, and that's impossible to teach. It's absolutely impossible to teach, and that's something you just have to feel. Okay, so and this is this is like the principle of having funny bones. You've either got that or you haven't, and you can't learn it. Yeah, I think that you know. Over time, you know, we've seen lots of, you know, people regarded as comedy actors who've been really good at drama and not necessarily the other way around. And I think it's because of that. It's, it's, I remember, so I do a series called Unforgotten, um, which is a, a sort of detective drama series. And, uh, and I remember after the first series, the, the questions I got asked most often was what about this switch from, comedy to drama and I started off uh, saying I don't approach the two any differently to be quite honest because you have a character and either silly funny things happen to that character or serious stuff happens but actually the more I started talking about it the more I realized just quite how technical comedy is and and actually with drama also because comedy requires a really specific response from from the audience which is laughter you know drama does not require people to whale <laughs> uh, you know for that clarity to kind of go have i been understood but but comedy does and i think that 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 notion of that sweet spot in terms of timing i think is is really difficult if not impossible to teach why don't you play one for us okay you sure yeah of course me and your dad love hearing your things don't we darling we do okay okay Okay, right, this is called Let It Be. (laughs) 
When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking. Oh, oh, sorry, love, I'll get it. Mm. Good start, love. Very pretty.
bit of slapstick, et cetera, et cetera. That's what kind of carried us into the 20th century when film started. And so I think the roots of that, I think, are very different. Whereas in America, I think that the whole Bordville thing, which was very similar to, to a Music Hall, the fact that film was an American medium, in, in effect, they didn't have that literary heritage. It was also a land of immigrants. So having these silent films and particularly comedies that could then appeal to all these people across different generations and, and different, coming from different countries was, was made commercial sense, you know, and those are the films that then traveled around the world. And then, as you said, in, in, in Secrets of Cinema, kind of established the template really for comedy movies. Britain didn't have that. And also at that point in sort of, you know, 19... 14 to kind of, you know, the, the talkies, the sort of mid-20s, mid to late 20s, was that Europe was blighted by a war. And so that development that came through the experience of continually making stuff and refining it happened in America a lot a lot quicker. And then by the time, you know, you'd, you'd got to post the First World War, war, certainly, and those interwar years, you know, Hollywood had the you know, the monopoly and kind of exporting what film comedy was. And I think Britain was always playing catch up until Britain found its, British comedy found its own voice. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Did you recognize, I mean, we were talking, and one of the things we try and do in that program is to sort of, you know, identify archetypes and structures through genres. And one of the things that we put forward was, was this idea of the little man being very, very sort of central to the two, the two things mm -hmm. that British comedy does is it's very good, the, you know, the little man kind of epitomized by Chaplin, although Chaplin's, you know, film career was entirely American, well, largely American for the beginning. Um, but he's, it was still a figure which goes, you know, from him into George Formby and into Norman Wisdom and, you know, mm. And then the the fact that we we are also very good at skewing our own skewing our own pomposity in a way that nobody else I think is did did that did that strike a chord with you did you think yes that makes sense or you think that's a contrivance? No, that made absolute sense. And I think that you know going beyond again comedy, if one looks at the oldest 
oldest texts, you know, things like, I mean, the Odyssey is, is really about a little man. And, uh, you know, there are gods who are kind of like, you know, pushing him this way or that way, but it's essentially just an ordinary bloke. And so I think that notion of the small man, I think, has always been there. It's, you know, it's the individual who is too small to comprehend this universe. And, you know, the fact that you know, things happen to you and around you and that you have no control over and trying to make sense of that. So I think the, the character of the small man, I think, has always been there. I think that the notion of it, it then becoming, you know, a comic creation, I think, happened later. I think that happened over time when people began to, to know that you can say things through that, through that particular character that you couldn't in any other way. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, again, interesting to me. I mean, one of my favourite films of all time, as you know, is A Matter of Life and Death. I mean, that's the... Per I mean, you, there is no greater thing that the small man in that is trying to battle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there is nothing bigger. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, Chaplin absolutely kind of understood that. And I think culled from his own experiences. I think the, the other difference was that the American idea of the small man was was aspirational in a way that the British small man wasn't you know the Br British small man were you know they were they, it was they were quite contained stories you know the, the Ealing comedies are quite contained stories whereas I think the American ones I think as they always have done you know pushed for that achievement yeah at the end do you know what I mean yeah, and yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know so with Chaplin he would never win uh, but there would be the little shrug and the kick, and he'd be off to aspire again. He'd be undefeated. He would. It wouldn't move yeah. on, but he would still persist. And I think that's the thing. It's kind of. And actually, I think that's true of of, of the Norman Wisdom and George Formby films mm -hmm. as well, which is that the winning was that they were still there. Yeah. They was. You know. They they had they had survived. And like you said, the little the Chaplin kick and a shrug, and and then off we go. And it's the not being obliterated. I mean, there is something quite existential about it. It is a kind of, by the end of the film, he's still there. You know, and particularly but, in the case of Chaplin, no matter what else has happened, he's still there. But also, also but, you know, with Norman Wisdom, and I don't know the George Formby uh, films quite as well, but with Norman Wisdom, you know, if he was raising money for the little kid to buy him a present or whatever, or for an orphanage or whatever, he would have raised it yeah. by the end of the film. It's not that he didn't raise it. Whereas... Chaplin just never got there. He never <laughs> got right. the money. He never got the thing. You know, it was, and yet he was this guy who was undaunted by that. And I think that was part of the American dream, wasn't it? You know, and th that whole notion of kind of like, no, 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 try again, try again. You two can be become president. Yeah. You know, it's funny because you were talking about, you know, going back to Odyssey and classic texts. Um, I wonder where, therefore, the, the the figure of King Arthur sits for you in in your kind of career development. Um, uh, well, on stage, uh, obviously. Um, but not tell on me, screen. tell me about that because it's uh, it, tell me about that, Sanj, because that is such a big deal. You kind of shrug it off now, but you know, it's. I, do you know what? It's it's one of the big sort of life turning points for me. Actually. Okay, so tell us, to tell us, how did it happen? How did it come about? So I came back from filming a sitcom series in India, and it was a, a really difficult experience. It was really, really tough and not particularly pleasant. And uh, the series that was made wasn't fantastically good either. There's you know, seven episodes, of which I think three are quite good. 
and uh, and I came back really kind of jarred by the experience. And uh, I came back, and there was you know one of the big West End producers I bumped into at the Evening Standard Awards or something like that. And uh, this producer approached me and said, "Look, we're doing this play, and I spoke to the writer. Think you'd be great for it." And I thought, "Well, that's fantastic. That is oh." Thank goodness, you know, that'd be great. A West End play, that'd be brilliant. Um, well, my agent, he's very happy. The writer is, is on board and the producer's on board. And, and about two or three weeks later, I, I, I called my agent to say, well, what, you know, what's happening with that? He said, look, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, you, you, the offer's been withdrawn. And I said, why? And it was one of the other actors uh, in that play who I didn't have scenes with objected to me being in it. Um, and because? Said, well, the, the argument that was given to me was, well, he's telly. And so, you know, I want to work with people who've got, you know, a, not a, it wasn't even a greater profile. I think it was just somebody with more respect. Somebody with, this particular actor was very uh, upwardly sort of aspirant. And I, yeah, a bit. Um, you know, I'll tell you who it was afterwards. And um, and I was absolutely kind of like, you know, floored by this. And I then got a call saying, look, you know, the Spamalot have been in touch. And would you like to go in and audition for King Arthur? And I said, well, I, I've never auditioned for a musical. I kind of, and I thought, well, that's that's new. I'll, I'll go and find out what a musical audition is like. I think I have no idea. Uh, and I think about three days after I did it, they said, you've got the job. And apart from the fact that it was, it was, it was Python. And so, you know, the, all the references from the Holy Grail and, and Life of Brian and everything else they threw in there that, you know, I used to do in the playground and do with my mates. Suddenly I was doing on stage. That was extraordinary. Uh, I was given a leeway by Eric Idle, who wrote it um, after he saw it to absolutely improvise whatever I wanted. He said, all that you're doing, all the improvising you're doing is the spirit of Python. So carry on. I've told everyone, I've told the production, blah, blah, blah. Let him kind of just run with it. And so I was given extraordinary freedom. And then within that, you know, um, I'd, I'd bumped into completely by chance three days before I was on stage opening uh, I, at uh, a mutual friend's house. I bumped into Terry Jones and ended up sitting opposite him. And I said, Terry, um, I, um, can I ask you a geeky question about uh, the Holy Grail? And he said, yeah. And I said, how long did it take you to shoot the, the Camelot dance sequence? Because there's lots of edits in it and there's tons of things going on. And he said, um, oh, you know, it was, yeah, it was a day. And I said, what, you did the whole thing in a day? There's, you know, there's the playing on the helmets, the knight's helmets. There's a bit of the curtain comes down there's treading on a cat i mean there's, i mean there's this there's tons going on and uh, and he said yeah we shot it in a day and i kind of then said to him listen i i've got to be honest with you um um I, i'm opening in in spam a lot soon and i've read that you don't like the stage production and i was wondering why and he said oh, well, oh you don't need to know that and i said look i'm curious i've signed a contract so i'm doing it anyway but i'm curious as to so what I got was a set of fantastic acting notes about what he felt Graham Chapman did successfully in the part and what he felt he hadn't seen on stage. So I used all of that to, to inform me playing it. And I remember kind of um, thinking that, you know, that 
I remember, again, journalists kind of asking me, uh, either they would say, well, <laughs> an Asian King Arthur. And I remember saying to them, I said, look, if people are thinking about my ethnicity when they leave the theatre, then I just haven't done my job. And so, and I, you know, the Lady of the Lake, uh, unlike the film um, King Arthur, then kind of ends up with the Lady of the Lake. And the Lady of the Lake was always cast as really tall. <laughs> and so, um, and I kind of did suggest, should I get a, get a little stepladder for the kiss? And that's going to take too long. And it's kind of, and, and I thought, is that the point where everyone's going to laugh? And um, initially I was hired for three months and they extended it to six months uh, so, so I could close the show in the West End. Um, and not one audience laughed at the point that the you know very very tall lady of the lake has to stoop to kiss me, <laughs> and it was I thought that I've done my job. They've bought into the characters. They're not gone. Well, that's a bit. What is this a perspective thing? It's just, where is she kind of like eight feet in front of him? Um, and so you know, and through that, I then met um, you know Michael Palin, Terry Gilliam, and you know became friends with them. So you know, as a a pivotal moment in terms of profession and life it was it was an extraordinary experience and, and particularly coming off the back of such disappointment you know it's one of those things that I kind of you know Mira and I talk about and I kind of say you know if we don't get a job I always kind of say you have no idea what's coming up no idea and you know that no idea may be you know a week a month a year it might be two years but you still have no idea what's coming up Man! Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you ma'am. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here! Oh! How'd you do? How'd you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. Didn't know we had a king. On the on the note of that, let me ask you to again repeat a story that you told yesterday about a friend of yours saying that they'd had a very bad week because of the jobs that they'd lost. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, was an actor friend of mine um, some years back, and we met for a coffee, and he, he was looking quite down. And I said, "What's the matter?" And he said, "I saw an awful week. I've, I've lost three jobs this week." And I said, oh, "Gosh, that's that's terrible. My goodness, how did you?" How did you lose them? And he said, well, I auditioned. I didn't get them. And I said, oh, so you didn't get them then? And he said, well, yeah, I lost them. And I said, no, well, you didn't lose them. You have to have something to to lose it. And and he said, well, same thing, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, I haven't got a job. And I said, no, they're completely different. Because by you saying losing it, you've just created in your internal monologue uh, a judgment of yourself as loser, failure. And next time you go for a job, you'll be battling that. And so, yeah, it's something you didn't get. And so, you know, disappointment, fine. Learn from it or whatever, but move on from it, you know. Let me finish by asking you something. When we did the pop movies program, we we, we talked, you know, a little bit about the Elvis movies. I, I do still think that, that 
the general rule about Elvis's movies before the army had ambition and Elvis's movies after the army less so. But the one thing that I think going back and looking at some of the lesser Elvis movies is that he was funny. He, I mean, yeah. I know, I know that we often hear about, you know, with Elvis on stage doing jokes and sometimes rambling, sometimes they hit the mark, sometimes they don't, but there are little moments. I mean, even in things like roused about and kissing cousins and, you know, films with, which are not great films in which he, his timing looks to me to be like, you've got a comedian's timing. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, the, the one sort of plainly comic film that he made, which was post-army, was Follow That Dream, which is a bit of a kind of Beverly Hillbillies thing, you know, the kind of Clampets type family. That, And so um, his comic performance in that is actually pretty good. Because I think in a lot of the moments in, you know, as the films got worse, when they gave him the comedy moment, they they landed too hard on it. You know, he would have to do, it would be the funny look aside and, you know, with a kind of, you know, uh, a sound wah, effect. Wah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but actually quite early on, and follow that dream was uh, maybe a couple of years after he came out of the army. So, uh, you know, there were moments in GI Blues and Blue Hawaii which were the biggest commercial successes he had, where he has those comedy moments where he's still playing characters. And not to kind of draw too great a similarity, but Peter Sellers in the first two Pink Panthers, I think is a fantastic comedy creation. And by the last two, I, I find it a little bit difficult to watch. I mean, they're great set pieces, but there's no character anymore. It's just a caricature. But those first two, um, the Pink Panther and Shot in the Dark, which I think is brilliant, um, my favourite. There's there's a there's a real character there that you can believe is kind of bumbling. Sanj, I know, I know, I know, I know you know this, but so who wrote Shot in the Dark? Oh gosh, this is. I do know this. Go, go and tell me. It was written by William Peter Blatty, who it, wrote the Exorcist. It was Blatty, of course, it was. It's just, just the, it it's just the greatest joy ever because, of course, he was a comedy writer before he wrote The Exorcist. And as he said, at one stroke, a very promising career in comedy was completely obliterated by writing this. Yeah, I, only because that's a fantastic bit of trivia. I've got another bit of trivia for you because, you know, one of the things that you featured in, in Secrets of Cinema was that, you know, the 70s British cinema was so dominated by those TV spin-offs. Yes. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> incredibly, uh, I think there were maybe two or three that had multiple films. I think Steptoe and Son had two. Um, but On the Buses, I think, had three. Yeah. I and think. They, were ham they were made by Hammer, weren't they? I think. They were made, a lot of those were made by Hammer, yeah. Um, but the first person uh, to use an ATM in Britain was Reg Varney. No. There you go. Well, in real life? In real life. How? That, I don't, I don't <laughs> know, maybe caught a bus. And <laughs> it was much more than a spectacle. The world's first cash machine was born right here in Enfield half a century ago. Judith Simpson was 20 years old that day. She came to see what all the fuss was about. Well, I remember there was quite a, a crowd outside the, the bank. A lot of people didn't really know what was going on, so I think people came just to be nosy, really. Um, I remember that, the, uh, that Reg Varney was here, and he put, I think, some sort of piece of paper into the machine, and out came money, which was 
extraordinary in those days. To get money out of a, a wall was bizarre. That's just fantastic. I should say, you know, if, if people are watching this on the Patreon page, they'll know because there's a video. But for anyone who isn't, you're sitting there wearing a very lovely Elvis 68 Comeback Special T-shirt. And I'm sitting here with behind me the Elvis bust, which my wife won't allow me to have in the house, and the dancing Elvis doll. Oh, that's is, very good. It's very, very good. Just looking behind me, I've got, I've got an Elvis trivia game, which is down here. That's an Elvis thing. I've got a taking care of business uh, very good there, and a load of books there and uh oh look i've got how does it feel and mr mark kermode i'm, I'm so I, I'm, I'm so thrilled that that's on your bookshelf and i hope you didn't just put it there as a prop i didn't and you are between <laughs> roger moore his last book and me and a guy named elvis by jerry schilling Wow. Oh, there you go. You're wow. You know, there was, a, there was a period in my life when I did nothing but read Elvis biographies. And, um, uh, you know, many of which are terrible, many mm. of which are great, but many of which are terrible. And quite often the most terrible ones are ones that are written by people who were sort of on the periphery yeah, of, you know, right. the and my favorite one is, you know, I was Elvis's brother, to which the answer is, no, you weren't. Yeah, no, you weren't. I'm sorry. You know, no, you weren't. I love the fact that you love Elvis as much as I do. I mean, you love Elvis more than I do. I think you certainly know more about Elvis than I do. But I think it's it's a kind of it's been something over which we've bonded over the years. When you first came on MK3D, you came on to talk about Flaming Star and how much that movie meant to you. And I think it's uh, I think it's I think it's great. I used to have a I used to have this these three rules. You know this thing about these three rules of life which was don't cheat on your wife, don't review any film you haven't seen, and don't be disrespectful about Elvis. <laughs> that was it. And that actually saw me through many, many years. I've kind of broadened it out now. It was when I, used, when I, when I liked the idea that all life was, uh, you know, you could get it. Nick has put a picture in the chat of, here is a picture of Reg at the ATM. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. There. Wow. I didn't realise there was there was documentary kind of evidence. Of that it, but, is uh, that is amazing. Well, listen, Sanjeev, it's been fantastic uh, uh, talking to you. What what are you up to at the moment? I mean, obviously you're the you are kind of go to uh, sit in uh, entertainment uh, presenter whenever we're off. What are you doing at the moment? I love doing that. I absolutely we love you doing it. Love doing it. Um, I, I, well, the series um, Unforgotten that I mentioned uh, before. Uh, or if you've edited it out, there's a series called Unforgotten. This is, this is, this is unedited, Sanj. This just goes out as Isn't it is. It? Everything you've Raw. said will, will have been heard in the podcast. Raw footage. Um, <laughs> Raw. So we've done. I've done that for three series. And um, just an interesting point on that, actually, going back to the comedy thing, was that I, I, so I had not really done a kind of, you know, a, a, a distinctly and clearly drama series before. I'd done little bits in, in, here and there, but not a series. And uh, the writer, Chris Lang, um, I asked him uh, why he'd cast me. And he said, because he said, I, I thought if you've got good comic timing and you're able to apply that to drama, that's the best of both worlds. And what was interesting was that in the first series, we had uh, people like Bernard Hill and Tom Courtney, uh, people who can do comedy you know, and can and find that line between comedy and drama. And since then, I've realised that he keeps that in mind with people that he's cast, is people who can do both. Because if you can apply that sense of innate timing to drama, then, you know, you're 
you're probably saving some months of money somewhere. Um, <laughs> so the fourth series of that, which we filmed last year, um, mostly pre and some of it post the various lockdowns, yeah. uh, that's going to be on telly in the next uh, month or so. Um, and I assume so that, that and I assume that you've not been filming during all this period of lockdown, or have you? Not during this period at all. No, oh, I've no got, sure. uh, there. There's been uh, since it was announced. Uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, The Sandman that's being made. And so uh, I have a small part in that. You're on so the variety this, poster. It's not that small, Sanj. I, you know, you can. I only assume that it was by mistake. It was kind of, we've gone on holiday by mistake moment. <laughs> I think it was, uh, it was all these other people that go, yeah, I know him, I know him, and, and him <laughs> is in it. It's King Arthur. Um, Got I mean, King Jen Arthur. <laughs> Jennifer Saunders told a really lovely story about doing some research, uh, going on a research trip uh, with Ruby Wax and Goldie Horn to India. And she said, wherever we went to whichever town, you know, people would just be crazy for the fact that Goldie Horn had turned up. And she said, we would be, you know, in her wake, trailing in her wake, uh, hearing people shout out, it's Goldie Horn, Goldie Horn, and her team. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, that's a lovely note to end on. Thanks ever so much for, uh, for giving me stuff. It's been lovely to talk to you, it always is. And um, uh, come back on. I mean, just to talk about nothing at all. I mean, it's kind of, you know, we can shoot the shit about comedy and Elvis and whatever you want to talk about. So, I, Do you know what I love about the conversations that you have actually on your podcast generally, but actually whenever I've sat down with you? is that they are just organic, meandering conversations. And I genuinely have no idea where they're going to go. No, well, you did. You sent me a, t a, te a text. You said, um, any tips on what we're going to talk about? Not really. Just, just you know, anything and everything. It'd be fine. Yeah, it would, it, it's been lovely, Sanchez. Thanks ever so much. And, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I hope to see you soon when all this is behind us, because, I, you know, I have, I have missed the physical interaction. You know, you, me, Dave Norris, Pint of Lager, be, you know... What could possibly be better than that? In the meantime, be done. give my uh, love to your family and uh, everyone be well. Thanks ever so much for listening to this podcast. If you have if you want to see the pictures of Sanj wearing his lovely Elvis t-shirt and me with my Elvis bust, you can go to the uh, Patreon page uh, where there's a bunch of extras there as well. And uh, remember to uh, subscribe, tell your friends, do all the usual stuff, keep watching the sky, stay well, stay home, protect the NHS. Thank you very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.